6. Actions. 1. Those of the spinal cord and medulla oblongata are performed without any consciousness or sensation on the part of the subject. 2. The second class embraces those of the tuberinual array, where the perception gives rise to motion without the interference of the intellectual faculties. These are denominated purely instinctive reflex actions, and include all those operations of animals which seem to display intelligent forethought. Thus, the beaver builds his habitation over the water, but not a single apartment is different from the beaver homestead of a thousand years ago. There is no improvement, no retrogression. Trains of thought have been termed a third class of reflex actions. It is evident that the power of reasoning island in a degree, possessed by some of the lower animals, for instance, a tribe of monkeys on a foraging expedition will station guards at different parts of the field, to warn the plunderers of the approach of danger, a cry from the sentinel, and general confusion is followed by retreat. Reason only attains its highest development in man, in whom it passes the bounds of ordinary existence, and, with the magic wand of love, reaches outward into the vast unknown, lifting him above corporeal being, into an atmosphere of spiritual and divine truth. Illustration Figure 60. Section of the brain and an ideal view of the pneumogastric nerve on one side, with its branches. Vertical section of the cerebrum. Section of the cerebellum. Corpus callosum. Lower section of medulla oblongata. Above. Origin of the pneumogastric nerve. 1. Pharyngeal branch. 2. Superior laryngeal. 5. Branches to the lungs. 4. Branches to the liver. 6. Branches to the stomach. The cranial nerves. From the brain, nerves are given off in pairs, which succeed one another from in front backwards to the number of twelve. The first pair, the olfactory nerves, are the nerves of the sense of smell. The second pair are the optic, or the nerves of the sense of sight. The third pair are called the motors oculi, the movers of the eye. From the fact that they are distributed to all the muscles of the eye with the exception of two, the fourth pair and the sixth pair each supply one of the muscles of the eye. On each side the fourth extending to the superior oblique muscle, and the sixth to the external rectus muscle. The nerves of the fifth pair are very large, they are each composed of two bundles of filaments, one motor and the other sensory, and have, besides, an additional resemblance to a spinal nerve by having a ganglion on each of their sensory roots, and, from the fact that they have three chief divisions, are often called the trigeminal, or trifacial, nerves, they are nerves of special sense, of sensation, and of motion, they are the sensitive nerves which supply the cranium and face, the motor nerves of the muscles of mastication, the buccinator and the masseter, and their third branches, often called the gustatory, are distributed to the front portion of the tongue, and are two of the nerves of the special sense of taste, the seventh pair, called also the facial nerves, are the motor nerves of the muscles of the face, and are also distributed to a few other muscles, the eighth pair, termed the auditory nerves, are the nerves of the special sense of hearing, as the seventh and eighth pairs of nerves emerge from the cavity of the skull together, they are frequently classed by anatomists as one, divided into the facial, or portiodura, as it is sometimes called, and the auditory, or portiomalis, the ninth pair, called the glossopharyngeal, are mixed nerves, supplying motor filaments to the pharyngeal muscles and filaments of the special sense of taste to the back portion of the tongue, the tenth pair, called the pneumogastric, or parvagum, are very important nerves, and are distributed to the larynx, the lungs, the heart, the stomach, and the liver, as shown in figure 60, 
this pair and the next are the only cerebral nerves which are distributed to parts of the body distant from the head. The eleventh pair, also called spinal accessory, arise from the sides of the spinal marrow, between the anterior and posterior roots of the dorsal nerves, and run up to the medulla oblongata, and leave the cranium by the same aperture as the pneumogastric and glossopharyngeal nerves. They supply certain muscles of the neck, and are purely motor, as the glossopharyngeal, pneumogastric, and spinal accessory nerves leave the cranium together. They are by some anatomists counted as the eighth pair. The twelfth pair, known as the hypoglossal, are distributed to the tongue, and are the motor nerves of that organ. The great sympathetic, a double chain of nervous ganglia extends from the superior to the inferior parts of the body, at the sides and in front of the spinal column, and is termed, collectively, the system of the great sympathetic. These ganglia are intimately connected by nervous filaments, and communicate with the cerebrospinal system by means of the motor and sensory filaments which penetrate the sympathetic. The nerves of this system are distributed to those organs over which conscious volition has no direct control. Four of the sympathetic centers, situated in the front and lower portions of the head, are designated as the ophthalmic, sphenopalatine, submaxillary and otic ganglia. The first of these, as its name indicates, is distributed to the eye, penetrates the sclerotic membrane the white, opaque portion of the eyeball, with its transparent covering and influences the contraction and dilation of the iris. The second division is situated in the angle formed by the sphenoid and maxillary bone, or just below the ear. It sends motor and sensory filaments to the palate, and velum palati. Its filaments penetrate the carotid plexus, are joined by others from the motor roots of the facial nerve and the sensory fibers of the superior maxillary. The third division is located on the submaxillary gland. Its filaments are distributed to the sides of the tongue the sublingual, and submaxillary glands, the otic ganglion is placed below the base of the skull, and also connects with the carotid plexus, its filaments of distribution supply the internal muscles of the malus, the largest bones of the tympanum, the membranous linings of the tympanum and the eustachian tube, three ganglia, usually designated as the superior, middle, and inferior, connect with the cervical and spinal nerves, their interlacing filaments are distributed to the muscular walls of the larynx, pharynx, trachea, and esophagus, and also penetrate the thyroid gland. The use of this gland is not accurately known. It is composed of a soft, brown tissue, and consists of lobules contained in lobes of larger size. It forms a spongy covering for the greater portion of the larynx, and the first section of the trachea, that it is an important organ, is evident from the fact that it receives four large arteries and filaments from two pairs of nerves, the sympathetic ganglia of the chest correspond in number with the terminations of the ribs, over which they are situated, each ganglion receives two filaments from the intercostal nerve, situated above it, thus forming a double connection, the thoracic ganglia supply with motor fibers that portion of the aorta which is above the diaphragm, the esophagus, and the lungs, in the abdomen the sympathetic centers are situated upon the celiac artery, and are termed, Collectively, the semilunar celiac ganglion, numerous inosculating branches radiate from the center and are called, from the method of their distribution, the solar plexus. From this, also, originate other plexi which are distributed to the stomach, liver, kidneys, intestines, spleen, pancreas, suprarenal glands, and to the organs of generation. Four other pairs of abdominal ganglia connected with. The lumbar branches are united by filaments to form the semilunar ganglion. 
The sympathetic ganglia of the pelvis consist of five pairs, which are situated upon the surface of the sacrum. At the extremity of the spinal column this system terminates in a single knot, designated as the ganglion impar, owing to the position of the sympathetic ganglia, deeply embedded in the tissues of the chest and abdomen. It is exceedingly difficult to subject them to any satisfactory experiments. A few isolated facts form the basis of all our knowledge concerning their functions. They give off both motor and sensory filaments. The contraction of the iris is one of the most familiar examples of the action of the sympathetic system. In the reflex actions of the nerves of special sense, the sensation is transmitted through the cerebrospinal system, and the motor impulse is sent to the deep-seated muscles by the sympathetic system. Physiologists enumerate three kinds of reflex actions, which are either purely sympathetic, or partially influenced by the cerebrospinal system. Dr. Dalton describes them as follows, first, reflex actions taking place from the internal organs, through the sympathetic and cerebrospinal systems, to the voluntary muscles and sensitive surfaces. The convulsions of young children are often owing to the irritation of indigest food in the intestinal canal. Attacks of indigestion are also known to produce temporary amorosis blindness, double vision, strabismus, and even hemiplegia, nausea, and a diminished or capricious appetite, are often prominent symptoms of early pregnancy, induced by the peculiar condition of the uterine mucous membrane. Second, reflex actions taking place from the sensitive surfaces, through the cerebrospinal and sympathetic systems to the involuntary muscles and secreting organs. Imprudent exposure of the integument to cold and wet, will often bring on a diarrhea. Mental and moral impressions, conveyed through the special senses, will affect the motions of the heart, and disturb the processes of digestion and secretion. Terror, or an absorbing interest of any kind, will produce a dilatation of the pupil, and communicate in this way a peculiarly wild and unusual expression to the eye. Disagreeable sights or odors, or even unpleasant occurrences are capable of hastening or arresting the menstrual discharge, or of inducing premature delivery. Third, reflex actions taking place through the sympathetic system from one part of the body to another. The contact of food with the mucous membrane of the small intestine excites a peristaltic movement in the muscular coat. The mutual action of the digestive, urinary, and internal generative organs upon each other takes place entirely through the medium of the sympathetic ganglia and their nerves. The variation of the capillary circulation in different abdominal viscera, corresponding with the state of activity or repose of their associated organs, are to be referred to a similar nervous influence. These phenomena are not accompanied by any consciousness on the part of the individual, nor by any apparent intervention of the cerebrospinal system. Chapter XII. The Special Senses. Sight. The eye is the organ through which we perceive, by the agency of light, all the varied dimensions relations positions, and visible qualities of external objects, the number, position, and perfection of the eyes, very remarkably in different orders, in many instances corresponding to the mode of life, habitation, and food of the animal, a skillful anatomist may ascertain by the peculiar formation of the eye, without reference to the general physical structure, in what element the animal lives, sight is one of the most perfect of the senses, and reveals to man the beauties of creation. The aesthetic sentiment is acknowledged to be the most refining element of civilized life. Painting, sculpture, architecture, and all the scenes of nature, from a tiny wayside flower to a Niagara, are subjects in which the poet's eye sees rare beauties to mirror forth in the rhythm of immortal verse. In the vertebrates, the organs of vision are supplied with filaments from the second pair of cranial nerves. 
in mammalia, the eyes are limited to two in number, which in man are placed in circular cavities of the skull, beneath the anterior lobes of the cerebrum, three membranes form the lining of this inner sphere of the eye, called respectively the sclerotic, choroid, and retina, the sclerotic, or outer covering, is the white, firm membrane, which forms the larger visible portion of the eyeball, it is covered in front by a colorless, transparent segment, termed the cornea, which gives the eye its lustrous appearance, within the sclerotic, and lining it throughout, is a thin, dark membrane termed the choroid, behind the cornea it forms a curtain, called the iris, which gives to the eye its color, the muscles of the iris contract or relax according to the amount of light received, thus enlarging or diminishing the size of the circular opening called the pupil, the retina is formed by the optic nerve, which penetrates the sclerotic and choroid and spreads out into a delicate, grayish, semi-transparent membrane. The retina is one of the most essential organs of vision, and consists of two layers. A spheroidal, transparent body, termed the crystalline lens, is situated directly behind the pupil. It varies in density, increasing from without inward, and forms a perfect refractor of the light received. The space in front of the crystalline lens is separated by the iris into two compartments called respectively the anterior and posterior chambers. The fluid contained within them, termed the aqueous humor, is secreted by the cornea, iris, and ciliary processes. The space behind the crystalline lens is occupied by a fluid, called the ventrious humor. This humor is denser than the other fluids and has the consistency of jelly, being perfectly transparent. The function of the crystalline lens is to produce distinct perception of form and outline. The transparent humors of the eye also contribute to the same effect, but only act as auxiliaries to the lens. The figure on the next page represents the course of the rays of light proceeding from an object to be refracted by the lens, and forming the inverted image XY on the screen. All rays of light proceeding from are concentrated at, and those proceeding from converge at, Rays of light emanating from the center of the object to be pursue a parallel course, and form the center of the image. Rays of light passing through a double convex lens converge at a point called the focus. In the organ of vision, if perfect, the focus is on the retina, which serves as a screen to receive the image or impression. We have a distinct perception of the outline of a distant hill, and also of a book lying before us. The rays of light we receive from these objects cannot have the same focus. How, then? Can we account for the evident accommodation of the eye to the varying distances? Various theories have been advanced to explain this adjustment, such as changes in the curvature of the cornea and lens, a movement of the lens, or a general change in the form of the eyeball, by which the axis may be lengthened or shortened. Two facts comprise all the positive knowledge which we possess on this subject. Every person is conscious of a muscular effort in directing the eye to a near object, as a book, and of fatigue, if the attention is prolonged. If, now, the eyes be directed to a distant object, there will result a sense of rest, or passiveness. By various experiments it has been proved that the accommodation or adjustment of the eye for near objects requires a muscular effort, but for distant objects the muscles are in an essentially passive condition. An increase in the convexity of the crystalline lens is now admitted to be necessary for a distinct perception of near objects. We may give two simple illustrations. Cited by Dr. Dalton in his recent edition of Human Physiology, if a candle be held near the front of an eye which is directed to a distant object, three reflected images of the flame will be seen in the eye, one on each of the anterior surfaces of the cornea and lens, and a third on the posterior surface of the latter. If the eye is directed to a near object, 
the reflection on the cornea remains unchanged, while that on the anterior surface of the lens gradually diminishes and approximates in size the reflection on the cornea, thus giving conclusive evidence that, in viewing a near object, the anterior surface of the crystalline lens become more convex, and at the same time approaches the cornea. Five or six inches is the minimum limit of the muscular adjustment of the eye, from that point to all the boundless regions of space, to every star and nebulae which send their rays to our planet, human vision can reach. It is the sense by which we receive knowledge of the myriads of worlds and suns which circle with unfailing precision through infinite space. Hearing. Illustration. Figure 64. Internal and external ear. 1. External ear. 2. Internal auditory meters. 3. Tympanum. 4. Labyrinth. 5. Eustachian tube. Hearing depends upon the sonorous vibrations of the atmosphere. The waves of sound strike the sensitive portions of the ear, and their impressions upon the auditory nerves are termed the sensations of hearing. The ear is divided into three parts, called respectively the external, middle, and internal ear. The external organs of hearing are two in number, and placed on opposite sides of the head. In most of the higher order of vertebrates, they are so situated as to give expression and proportion to the facial organs, and, at the same time, to suit the requirements of actual life. The external ear is connected with the interior part by a prolongation of its orifice, termed the external auditory meters. In man, this grisly portion of the auditory apparatus is about one inch in length, lined by a continuation of the integument of the ear, and has numerous hairs on its surface, to prevent the intrusion of foreign substances. Between the external emiades and the cavity of the middle ear is the membrana tympani, which is stretched across the opening like the head of a drum, the tympanum, or eardrum communicates with the pharynx by the eustachian tube, which is a narrow passage lined with delicate, ciliate epithelium. On the posterior portion it is connected with the mastoid cells. Three small bones are stretched across the cavity of the tympanum, and called, from their form, the malus, incus and stapes, or the hammer, anvil, and stirrup. Agassiz mentions a fourth, which he terms the os orbiculari, each wave of sound falling upon the membrana tympani throws its molecules into vibrations which are communicated to the chain of bones, which, in turn, transmits them to the membrane of the foramen ovale. The three muscles which regulate the tension of these membranes are termed the tensor tympani, laxator tympani, and stapedium tympani. The labyrinth, or internal ear, is a complicated cavity, consisting of three portions termed the vestibule, cochlea, and semicircular canals. The vestibule is the central portion and communicates with the other divisions. The labyrinth is filled with a transparent fluid, termed perilymph, in which are suspended, in the vestibules and canals, small membranous sacs, containing a fluid substance, termed endolymph sometimes called vitrine auditive from its resemblance to the vitreous humor of the eye. The filaments of the auditory nerve penetrate the membranous tissues of these sacs, and also of those suspended at the commencement of the semicircular canals. These little sacs are supposed to be the seat of hearing, and to determine, in some mysterious way, the quality, intensity and pitch of sounds. The determination of the direction of sound is a problem of acoustics. Some have contended that the arrangement of the semicircular canals is in some way connected with this sensation, but this supposition, together with the theory of the transmission of sound through the various portions of the cranial bones, has been exploded, from the foregoing description. It will be seen that the labyrinth and tympanum are the most essential parts of the organs of hearing. In delicacy and refinement this sense ranks next to sight. 
the emotions of beauty and sublimity, excited by the warbling of birds and the roll of thunder, are scarcely distinguishable from the intense emotions arising from sight. It is a remarkable fact, that the refinement or cultivation of these senses is always found associated. Those nations which furnish the best artists, or had the highest appreciation of painting and sculpture, produce the most skillful musicians, those who reduce music to a science. Smell. Illustration. Figure 65. 1. Frontal sinus. 2. Nasal bone. 3. Olfactory ganglion and nerves. 4. Nasal branch of the fifth pair. 5. Spinopalatine ganglion. 6. Soft palate. 7. Hard palate. Cerebrum. Anterior lobes. Corpus callosum. Septum lucidum. Fornix. Thalamioctici. Corpus striatus. Next in order of delicacy, and more closely allied with the physical functions, is the sense of smell, delicate perfumes, or the fragrance of a flower impart an exhilarating sensation of delight, while numerous odors excite a feeling of disgust. The organ of smell is far less complicated in its structure than the eye or the ear. It consists of two cavities having cartilaginous walls, and lined with a thick mucous coat, termed the pituitary membrane, over which are reflected the olfactory nerves. Particles of matter, too minute to be visible even through the microscope, are detached from the odorous body and come in contact with the nerves of smell which transmit the impressions or impulses thus received to the brain. Figure 65 shows the distribution of the olfactory nerves in the nasal passages. The nose is supplied with two kinds of filaments which are termed respectively nerves of special and nerves of general sensation. Compared with the lower animals, especially with those belonging to the carnivorous species, the sense of smell in man is feeble. The sensation of smell is especially connected with the pleasures and necessities of animal life. Taste. The sense of taste is directly connected with the preservation and nutrition of the body. A delicious flavor produces a desire to eat a savory substance. Some writers on hygiene have given this sense an instinctive character. By assuming that all articles having an agreeable taste are suitable for diet, the nerves of taste are distributed over the surface of the tongue and palate, and their minute extremities terminate in well-developed papillae. These papillae are divided into three classes, termed, from their microscopic appearance, Filiform, fungiform and circumvallate. The organ of taste is the mucous membrane which covers the back part of the tongue and the palate. The papillae of the tongue are large and distinct, and covered with separate coats of epithelium. The filiform papillae are generally long and blunt and are found over the entire surface of the tongue. The fungiform are longer, small at the base and broad at the end. The circumvallate are shaped like an inverted V and are found only near the root of the tongue. The largest of this class of papillae have other very small papillae upon their surfaces. It is now pretty satisfactorily established that the circumvallate, or fungiform papillae are the only ones concerned in the special sense of taste. The conditions necessary to taste are, that the substance be in solution either by artificial means, or by the action of the saliva, and that it be brought in contact with the sensitive filaments embedded in the mucous membrane. The nerves of taste are both general and special in their functions. If the general sensibility of the nerves of taste is unduly excited, the function of sensibility is lost for some time. If a peppermint lozenge is taken into the mouth, it strongly excites the general sensibilities of taste, and the power of distinguishing between special flavors is lost for a few moments. A nauseous drug may then be swallowed without experiencing any disagreeable taste. Paralysis of the facial nerve often produces a marked effect in the sensibility of the tongue. Where this influence lies has not been fully explained.
Probably it is indirect, being produced by some alteration in the vascularity of the parts or a diminution of the salivary secretions. Touch. By the sense of touch, we mean the general sensibility of the skin. Sensations of heat and cold are familiar illustrations of this faculty. By the sense of touch, we obtain a knowledge of certain qualities of a body, such as form consistency, roughness, or smoothness of surface, etc. The tip of the tongue possesses the most acute sensibility of any portion of the body, and next in order are the tips of the fingers. The hands are the principal organs of tactile sensation. The nerves of general sensibility are distributed to every part of the cutaneous tissue. The contact of a foreign body with the back will produce a similar tactile sensation, as with the tips of the fingers. The sensation, however, will differ in degree because the back is supplied with a much smaller number of sensitive filaments, in quality it is the same. Chapter XIV. Cerebral Physiology. By means of the nervous system, an intimate relation is maintained between mind and body, for nervous energy superintends the functions of both. The fibers of nervous matter are universally present in the organization, uniting the physical and spiritual elements of man's being. Even the minutest nerve rootlets convey impressions to the dome of thought and influence the intellectual faculties. We recognize muscular force, the strength of the body, molecular force, molecules in motion, as heat, light, chemical force, electricity, and nervous force, a certain influence which reacts between the animal functions and the cerebrum, thus connecting the conditions of the body with those of the mind. We cannot speak of the effects of mind or body separately but we must consider their action and reaction upon each other, for they are always associated. There are many difficulties in understanding this relationship, some of which may be obviated by a study of the development of nervous matter, and its functions in the lower orders of organization. Within the plant cells is found a vital, vegetable substance termed bioplasm, or protoplasm, which furnishes the same nutritive power as the tissues of the polyp and jellyfish. Many families of animals have pulpy bodies, and slight instinctive motion and sensibility, and in proportion as the nervous system is developed, both of these powers are enfolded. Plants had a low degree of sensibility, limited motion, respiratory and circulatory organs. Animals possess quicker perceptions and sensibilities, the power of voluntary motion, and, likewise a rudimental nervous system. Some articulates have no bony skeleton, their muscles being attached to the skin which constitutes a soft contracting envelope. One of the simplest forms of animal life in which a nervous system is found, is the five-rayed starfish. In each ray there are filaments which connect with similar nerve filaments from other rays, and form a circle around the digestive cavity. It probably has no conscious perception, and its movements do not necessarily indicate sensation or volition. In some worms a rudimentary nervous system is sparingly distributed to the cavities of the thorax and abdomen, and, as in the starfish, the largest nerve filament is found around the esophagus, presiding over nutrition. A higher grade of organization requires a more complete arrangement of nervous substance. Stimulus applied to a one organ is readily communicated to, and excites activity in another. The nervous system of some insects consists of two long, white cords, which run longitudinally through the abdomen, and are dilated at intervals into knots, consisting of collections of nerve cells, called ganglia. They are really nerve centers, which receive and transmit impulses, originate and impart nervous influence according to the nature of their organic surroundings. The ganglia situated over the esophagus of insects correspond to the medulla oblongata in man, in which originate the spinal accessory, glossopharyngeal, 
animalgastric nerves, the latter possess double endowments, and not only participate in the operations of deglutition, digestion, circulation, and respiration, but are also nerves of sensation and instinctive motion. The suspension of respiration produces suffocation. In insects, these ganglia are scarcely any larger than those distributed within the abdomen, with which they connect by means of minute, nervous filaments. Insects are nimble in their movements, and manifest instinct, corresponding to the perfection of their muscular and nervous systems. When we ascend to vertebrates, those animals having a backbone, the amount of the nervous substance is greater, the organic functions are more complex, and the actions begin to display intelligence. Man possesses not only a complete sympathetic system, the rudiments of which are found in worms and insects, and a complete spinal system, less perfectly displayed in fishes, birds, and quadrupeds, but, supranted to all these is a magnificent cerebrum, and, as we have seen, all parts of the body are connected by the nervous system, the subtle play of sensory and motor impulses, of sentient and spiritual forces, indicates a perfection of nervous endowments nowhere paralleled, and barely approached by inferior animals, this meager reference to brainless animals, who sow knots of ganglia throughout their bodies act automatically as little brains, shows that instinct arises simultaneously with the development of the functions over which it presides, here begins rudimentary, and reasoning intelligence, it originates within the body as an inward, vital impulse, is manifested in an undeviating manner, and therefore displays no intention or discretion, while drive carpenter likens the human organism to a keyed instrument, from which any music it is capable of producing can be called forth at the will of the performer. He compares a bee or any other insect to a barrel organ, which plays with the greatest exactness a certain number of tunes that are set upon it, but can do nothing else. Instinct cannot learn from experience, or improve by practice, but it seems to be the prophetic germ of a higher intelligence. It is nearly as difficult to draw the dividing line between instinct and a low grade of intelligence, as it is to distinguish between the psychical and psychological functions of the brain. The intimate relation of instinct to intelligence is admirably illustrated in the working honeybee. With forethought it selects a habitation, constructs comb, collects honey, provides a cell for the ova, covers the chrysalis, for which it deposits special nourishment, and is, 